Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey guys, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Stitcher Smart Radio. You can hear other people while on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio, a free news and talk mobile app available for your smartphone. And when you download Stitcher to hear other people, you have a chance to win some money. Downloading is quick and easy. Just find Stitcher in the App Store, download it, it's free, and it takes just a few seconds. Then, during registration, hit the promo code box. It should say, tell us how you heard about Stitcher. Where it says that, you enter other people, and when you do that, you're automatically entered to win 100 bucks. It's that simple. The latest episode of the show will then be waiting for you in your favorites, and you'll get access to lots of other amazing content too, always available on demand with no syncing. That's the Stitcher app. Go download it at stitcher.com free of charge or get it in the App Store. It's available for your iPhone, your Android, or your tablet computer. And don't forget to enter the promo code Other People when you register. This is an app. You can apply it. Go and get it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. All right, you guys, right. here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is loosely scripted. This is largely improvised. Thanks for being here. My name is Brad Listy. I want to get rid of my cable television. I just decided that. I want to cut myself off. I want to throw my flat screen out the window. I want to roof test it. I want to hit it with a baseball bat. I want to shoot it dead with a machine gun. I want to drown it in a bathtub. I want to feed it into a wood chipper. I want to pour gasoline on it and light it on fire. I want to pepper spray it. I want to electrocute it. I want to fillet it. I want to chainsaw it. I want to pile drive it. I want to shatter it. I want to torture its high definition soul. I want to slow down is what I'm saying. I want to have a living room filled uh, with leather bound volumes and I want to live a life of the mind. How's that? I want to have a stereo that plays music 18 hours a day and I want to sit in a chair at night in a state of total equilibrium I want to remain hydrated. I want to write longhand. I want to not know what is happening in the world. I want to be Amish. Why are there not more really good Amish novelists? You ever thought about that? You would think, considering how removed they are from all the insane static of the world, that they would be writing some really good books. Uh, but maybe it's because they're not allowed to read. 
I, I don't know the rules. I don't know what the rules are for the Amish. Can they read books? Can they read modern literature? Is that the case? What can Amish people read? Regardless, what I'm saying, <laughs> what I'm saying is, if you gave these people access to libraries, I'm thinking that they could produce some masterpieces. Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Stephen Gillis. He is the author of several books and the co-founder of Dezank Books, a terrific independent press. He is also the founder of 826 Michigan. His latest collection of stories is called The Law of Strings, and it is available now uh, from Atticus Books. Very pleased to have him here on the program. I think you're going to like this conversation. Very interesting guy. This right here, ladies and gentlemen, is Stephen Gillis. Uh, his new story collection is called The Law of Strings. Where am I now? Physically or mentally or spiritually? Uh, all of the above, but let's start with physically. Physically, I am at the far end of our house. We, we moved from the east side of Ann Arbor to the west side of Ann Arbor. We had lived on the east side of Ann Arbor for, gosh, about 17 years, and we moved out here to the west side, which is completely different. Um, and I'm in the far end of the house, which my wife uses uh, as her knitting room. So you wanted a quiet space, and this is about as quiet as you can get around here. The knitting room sounds quiet. Yeah, it's quiet. Yeah, she's a big knitter, so this is her little room. So I've I've uh, usurped it for for the, for our hour. So what's she? I mean, she's knitting. Is she knitting you clothing? Like you get hats out of the deal? And she, well, I, I try to. I try to. She generally makes things too small for me, which which I guess is a compliment. I'm supposed to making them too big, and then they go to the kids or or go somewhere else. But uh, she's she's an amazing knitter. She knits everything from from sweaters to clothes to baby stuff to purses to. To afghans and blankets, she loves it, and she's she's good at it, and it relaxes her. I wish I had some sort of outlet like knitting, but I, I, I was I was just gonna say, like I've always envied people who know how to do that because I think it's probably kind of zen and like it to, you can oh definitely tune the world out, and then at the end of it all, you get like a sweater out of it, or that's right. You can be zen and you can be uh, constructive at the same time. <laughs> right, yeah. right. So, what about uh, mentally and emotionally? Like you, you know, how are, how is your state right now with this book rolling out and with everything that's been going on? Um, I'm good. I'm, I'm, I'm generally in the same, same frame of mind, which is pretty crazy. I just, I'm, I'm a type A plus, so I'm, I'm always doing a million things at once. And, uh, I, I almost have to stop and remind myself, I shouldn't, I don't want to sound ridiculous, but I'm really excited about the book. I'm proud of the book, but you know, I've, I've got so many other things going on that, uh, 
having the book come out is just another another thing that's going on in my life. I'm you know doing all the stuff with the Zank. I'm working on a on a new novel now, and uh, I've got two kids who are keep me busy all the time, and uh, so I'm just in my general state of uh, trying to not keel over. Well, no, but that's I think sometimes it's good to get uh, get yourself busy because otherwise you sit around freaking out about the book too much. You yeah, know, you yeah. Just, you just keep doing the work. It sounds like, and then you just roll it out. There you go. Yeah, you just just keep keep on keeping on. That's 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 what I do. When I you know when I when I published my first uh, book uh, ten years ago, um, I was as all first writers are. I was very excited and 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 a bit freaked out, not sure how to how to behave and uh, and. Uh, you know, which is which is wonderful because again, working with the Zank and seeing great new writers that 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 we publish and seeing their excitement, I look back and say, oh, I I used to be like that, but now I'm a I'm a little bit more mellow because I've I've been around the block a few times. And not to say I I I'm any less excited about it, but I just I just react differently to the process. Are you any more cynical, or do you have you feel are you less cynical? cynical? Oh man, you you you've done your research. Um, am I cynical? No, I think um. Cynical toward what what's, what what I expect to come from from my work, you mean, or cynical on the whole the whole aspect of publishing? Or that's a, that's a pretty big question. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess like publishing in general, or I mean, I, and the other thing, I guess, in light of the fact that you've got a new book out, that you know, have you learned over the time to- over time as you've published, um, you know, multiple titles to uh, manage expectations differently or anything like that? Yes, well, definitely so. I mean, everybody, regardless of how realistic they're trying to be, um, they think that their first novel is going to blow up and and you know hit number one and, and whatever. And then you 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 get uh, reality sets in fairly quickly. And I, so I wouldn't say cynical. I would just say that you know, I, I, let me let me step take two steps back and say when I first started writing, all I wanted to do, and this is, this is the honor of God's truth. I hope it doesn't come off making me sound, you know, um, presumptuous or whatnot, but I just wanted to be a good writer. And I was one, I didn't concern myself initially with publishing, although obviously publishing was on the, you know, was, was, was there in my mind. I I was writing to publish, but I really tried to become the best writer I could be and uh, jump ahead uh, a number of years. And I started teaching at uh, Eastern Michigan and I'd have young students who had some talent but would come to me and say, well, how do I publish? And I would just you know, shut them down right away and say, look, worry about becoming a good writer first and everything else will follow. So as far as um, the question about my becoming cynical or whatnot, I, was just, I just wanted to become a good writer. And everything else hopefully followed. If, if, I, if my expectations got out in front of me and, and, and you know, my first novel, Walter Falls, did 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 nicely, but you know, it didn't make the the New York Times bestseller list or anything. And and I guess I, I I realized, okay, this is this is the real world. This is how literary fiction is. So I wouldn't want to label it as cynical, but I would certainly say that I have a better sense of how of how the the the, the reading world operates. I mean, I think there. I mean, I I could talk about this for the full hour. I think there are some amazing, amazing writers that not only we at the Zank publish, but but a great many independent presses publish, who if you know they sell two thousand copies and and that's good, but in the grand scheme of things, it's 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 not good because these great talented people should have a broader audience. So if that's cynicism. I don't. I, I recognize that that's how the world functions, and it's disappointing to me. Um, I try not to be cynical. I try to put all my energies constantly into my own work and to my work with the Zank and to champion the great writers that I come across, and and I try to keep the, you know, the cynicism to, to a minimum. 
Okay, so let's talk about. Uh, I think one one thing that's interesting uh, for us to discuss is the is the perspective you have working both as an author and then also on the public you know on the publishing side of things, which is a little bit. Well, I guess it's less and less unique these days because of the way that publishing works. You know, there are a lot of uh, there's a lot easier access, I guess, to the world of publication and to becoming a publisher. But um, Dzank, as far as indies go, uh, is one of the better ones. And uh, you know, do you look uh, at the process from that side of things and have any insight into what makes a book pop? Like, you know, when you look at a book that does happen to. Uh, you know, overcome the odds and uh, climb a bestseller list, or you know, even just just do uh, better than average sales. Do you have any idea why that happens? Like, do you think that there is something tangible that can be done on the marketing side or from the author side, or do you think that it's a little bit more mysterious than that? Well, that's a, that, that's a really good question, and um, I will I will answer it this way: uh, it is mysterious. Um, what we do at the Zank, and again, it goes back to my philosophy and my, my partner, Dan Whitgut's philosophy, is we look for the best writing. We look for the best books. And then we try to figure out, okay, how do we, how do we market this puppy? We don't look at it the way some of the New York houses do and say, okay, marketing first, book second. And if, if, you know, if it's a lesser book, but we can market the hell out of it, then we're going to take this book on. We look for the best book. Now, how that book pops, obviously, you want to get the publisher behind it. You want to get the, the author, if he's willing, to, to, to do readings and, and whatnot. We, you know, we have many different ways that we market uh, books. But as to what catches on with the public, God, it's, it is a mystery. Because there have been books that we have done at the Zank that have won national and international awards. And there have been books that I just love. Obviously, every book we publish, I love. That for one reason or another, you know, they, they do, they do fine, but they don't do as well as I think they, they should. And to explain it, it's, it's a, it, it baffles me. So the short answer is no, it's, it's a, it's a freaking mystery as to why some books pop and why some, some books don't. Um, obviously, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, no, I was, I was just going to say like, as you know, from an author perspective and also from a publisher perspective, is there a baseline that you can actually define uh, in terms of what should be done, like what what is the what should an author do? <laughs> like what would you recommend if you if you're just acquiring a manuscript by an author at Dzank, and uh, or you're thinking of your own work, uh, you know, obviously like a website, a social media presence. Like, does any of that? Do you, do you think that that stuff really matters? Is there? Uh, well, you know, it's again, it's interesting because everything has changed so much in the last 10 to 15 years. And, and when I, I've been writing for quite some time and, you know, um, I'm, I'm going to digress here a moment to, to give you some perspective on my own career. I mean, I, I wrote for, for several, several years um, before my first book um, even got a sniff and then was published. And um, during that process, uh, Charles Baxter said um, every author has got to write uh, 10 years worth of shit before they even figure out what they're doing. And at the time I thought, oh, that's nuts. But it really is true. You've got to understand the process. You've got to understand how to become a good writer. So um, that said, uh, jumping ahead to when a book actually does publish and you, you think you've got something that you want to want to sell, uh, um, Another writer told me, uh, a well-respected writer, that you, you, you take it one reader at a time, meaning that you just want to sell. You know, if, you go to, if you give a reading and two people show up, read to those two people. Um, so we obviously live in an age now where 
getting your uh, book out there is, is a lot easier than it was before social media popped, before the, the online world became much more um, broader-based. You know, before, you know, 10 years ago, we relied, we being writers and publishers, we relied on the print medium to, to get the reviews and get the word out there. Now, one of the things that the Zank focused on when we opened our doors seven years ago is recognizing how online is going to explode. So we really focused on getting our books out to the online um, people, the blogs and, and the reviewers. And you see that most of, the, most of the, the, the communication about books is being done online now. And in fact, print publications, the papers are giving up their, their book reviews. So um, this is a, <laughs> a circumlutary way to, to get back to your, your question. Um, a writer can do as much as they want online, through the social medium, through Facebook, through Twitter, through whatnot, whether or not that, that is the, you know, the magic elixir, the be-all and end-all to getting your book sold, no one can say, but it is, it is something that they should consider doing. Um, I'm, I'm, I've always been reticent to do reading just because I'm kind of a quiet, stick-to-my-schedule type of guy. I love to write, and going out on tour is something that I don't normally do, although my Atticus Books, who's publishing my short story collection, is, uh, let's just say, very <laughs> encouraging about my going out on a tour, so I'm going to tour this this book, and it'll be the first time I've ever done any extensive readings. Readings, obviously, are very helpful to authors because it puts you in front of an audience, it puts you in different cities. So uh, an author can do as much as they want. We at the Zank don't stand over someone's head and say, you know, God damn it, you're going you're gonna to do this, and you're going to sell this book. We show them, here's ways. Here's ways we can market it. Here's ways you can market it. We've had some writers who have put together 25 city tours, which, uh, you know, and we help them with it, and we help them, you know, finance it. And they go out, and they sell, they sell their books, and that's great. And then we have other authors who say, you know what, I, I'm just not into that. And I, we say, cool, we'll figure out a way to market it. And there's more ways you can market now because we live in an age where you can go online and do a lot of selling. So. That's a long answer to your question. The bottom line is you can do as much or as little as you want, and who knows if it's going to work or not work, but it certainly can't hurt. Yeah. I mean, it's like, I think you just got to throw a bunch of stuff at the wall. I mean, you got to try something. I know, as, you know, from my experience as an author that once you have the book going out into the world, uh, it's it's hard to resist the urge to try to help it, you know, especially if you're an author who doesn't automatically get New York Times book review coverage and doesn't automatically get a bunch of uh, attention, you know, then it's, it's kind of who, who else is going to fight for it if you don't. And if your publisher doesn't, you know, that's true. That's, that's true. And again, I, I have, I, as an author, I'm the exception because I'm, I'm such a freak. I just like to, to do my writing and I put my, and I kick myself now because some of my books did well in spite of myself. And I'm like, well, geez, man, imagine if I had toured, imagine if I did more readings, but you know, and then I, then here I am as a publisher and I'm, I'm very encouraging and supportive of, of writers going out. Um, but then I'm also very understanding that we have some writers who are just, you know, they're, they're, they're shy. They're, they they do not want to hit the road, but it, it, in, in, the, in each author's own way, yes, indeed, you should champion your book because it's your book. You put, you invested your heart and soul into it then, and, and you should market it any way you can. Yeah. I mean, and you know, but the thing is, is that I, I say throw a bunch of stuff at the wall and we, we, you know, we both kind of agree, I guess that, uh, it can't hurt. But then at the same time, just like you said earlier, like you had books come out early, you know, earlier in your career where you didn't do much and they tended to do okay. And, there's there's a part of me that wonders if it even matters. There's a part of me that thinks that there might just be some sort of like 
cosmic thing that happens to certain books and you know it winds up winds up just being a word of mouth situation where one reader reads it loves it and presses it into the hands of another reader who does the same thing and it that's the way that it goes and that's really the yes. only thing that can move a book I, I and I, I would tend to agree with that wholeheartedly if, if you've written a good book and readers love it and the uh the bookstores pick up on it then it's gonna it's gonna you you could you could do nothing and it'll take off on its own i mean obviously there are there are great books who um people read and, and for whatever reason the word of mouth doesn't get out there but for books that do take off it generally is because of that and i mean obviously a, a writer going out there and and championing and marketing his own book you know, you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna make some sales that you wouldn't have made before but as far as the book really taking off, it is as you just described. It is word of mouth and, and the thing just gathering momentum on it on its own. So for for an independent press, uh, for a, let's say a novel or a story collection that comes out, uh, what is like like you mentioned two thousand copies earlier? I don't know how like you know arbitrary that number was, but I mean, what what is a, a, a number? What's like a, a decent sales number? You know what I'm saying? Do you have a benchmark where you're like, well, you know, if this thing does. Uh, what we think it can do, two thousand is about right. Or if it does really well, maybe five thousand. Like, where does it? You know, how, how do you yeah. me- measure that kind of thing? Well, uh, yeah, two thousand was was a was a, a, a pretty specific number. If um, and and again, you got to look at how things have changed uh, so quickly. And we can talk about what Design's done with eBooks, but now eBooks have have skewed the numbers a bit too because the eBooks have have definitely taken off. But um, if we're talking solely, you know. The normal, the print book. Um, when we first started seven years ago, and ebooks obviously hadn't, it were just uh, an idea. Um, if 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 a book, a liter, a work of literary fiction sold two thousand copies, um, that we, we'd feel we'd feel pretty good about that. And we adjusted our numbers for our print runs um, to, to to be cognizant of what we were shooting for. And and two thousand for literary fiction is is a nice number. Um, I mean, obviously, there are, there, are, there are some works that can be classified as literary fiction that, that take off and you know hit the stratospheres. But um, um, in general, 2,000 is a nice sale. We've had, we've had some who've, who've gone way beyond that, um, and we've had some that have fallen short of that. But uh, 2,000 is a nice number for, for a print book, right? For liter- for literary fiction, right? Uh, okay, so like, I guess I want to talk now a little bit about how you work because you've alluded a couple of times now to how. Uh, regimented you are, and I think before we got started, you were talking. I think you referred to yourself as being Type A. So, so how is it that you approach the work, and then how is it that you find balance between all the different things that you have going on? I mean, obviously, you're you're reading manuscripts and editing and functioning on the, on the publication side, but then you've, you're also finding time to to crank out books and raise a family. That's a lot going on. So, how, how, do, yeah. you, how do you manage it all? Are you are you caffeinated a lot? <laughs> well, you know, it's funny when people describe to me what I do. And I say, Jesus Christ, do I do all that? Um, it freaks me out. But in the day to day, I just do it. I'm I'm someone who I'm 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 so freaking anal about my schedule, and everybody who knows me <laughs> is probably laughing. Um, I get up like around four in the morning, and I and I work out, and then I hit my writing day. So I I start my day with with exercise, and then I hit my writing day, and then I. As my writing day continues, I slowly will do email. You know, I'll take like a 30-second break and do some emails and, and do some design work, and then that kind of picks up speed as, as other people start waking up. Um, and when I finish with my writing day, I shift straight over into full, you know, full force uh, design work, and uh, that goes well into the evening. And then I read um, 
at nights, and then I I crash. So I get like I get like four hours sleep, and I and I and I don't I don't neglect my family. I spend a lot, you know, spend as much time as I can. I've always got my family in mind, but um, that's pretty my 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 life cycle. I just I work it, and I, it's part of my philosophy. I just uh, I think if you enjoy what you're doing, it doesn't seem like work, even though it's really hard work. You just you do what you got to do, and that's always been how I approach things. I just attack them and, and do them. And, and that's my day. So, okay. So 4am wake up, you have an alarm going off. You know, obviously you're not just pumped. No, I'm not, a, I'm not an alarm guy. I've never set an alarm in my entire life. I've, it, it, the problem with me, and I know I'm going to sound, come off like a, like a freak, but the problem with me is staying in bed till four. I, I don't sleep and, and I wake up and I'm like, no, Steven, stay the freak in bed, stay in bed, stay in bed. So I have to, sometimes I have to force myself to, to, to stay in bed till four. Um, I just don't sleep. Um, and no, I've never set an alarm. So you just, I'm just wait, up. You, so you're you're up at four without an alarm every every oh, single yeah. day. Every single day for my entire my entire life and I'm old, so yeah. I've never set an alarm in my life. Holy cow. Okay. And so how long and then you, you refer to your writing day. So you, you work out for an hour, you sit down at the computer, uh or or I I mean unless you're writing longhand, and then how long do you work for? I write, you know, I, I, it's another exception. I write probably longer than most people. I I put in a good eight hour writing day, but but within that, you know, um, I'm grabbing time out. Some some design important design stuff will come up. I, I'm always monitoring my email. Again, I get up so early that I have a good three hours before anybody's even starting to email me or stuff's left over from the night before I address before I hit my writing day. But then. The Zank work will start encroaching on my, my writing day, even though I, I've learned how to multitask and take 30 seconds out and do the Zank thing and then go back into my writing. Um, so I generally, my writing day will continue for a good eight hours, um, which again, I know is longer than most people, but for me, it works. And again, because I'm coming up for air to do some of the Zank stuff within that time. And then when my creative process is completely shut down, I just switch fully over to the Zank. And you never worry about burning out. I mean, this and this is a seven day a week process, or do you ever take a day off? Seven day a week, three hundred sixty five days a year for uh, forever. I've been doing this process forever. Even before the Zank started, I was doing. Yeah, I, I mean, again, I, I don't want to come off like a jerk, but I, this is just me. This is just who I am. I, I don't relax real well. <laughs> I don't. I mean, I love my life, uh, but I don't relax real well. So I just, to me, cranking it is is fun. So I just do it. Okay. So what about vacations? You ever take a vacation? I take my, you know, my family understands me. Uh, I never take a vacation where I'm not working. I just, they understand me on vacation. I get up the same, I get up early and I do my writing day. I, you know, I might do a little bit less. I will, I, obviously I will do a little bit less. But I still, I, I write every day, you know, I haven't missed a writing day in 30 years. Um, I've written through, I've written through, I tore my hamstring from the bone water skiing and I wrote, standing up i couldn't even sit down i had to pick my leg up to get up the stairs um and uh i wrote standing up uh, I, i've written through i've written through i've written through pneumonia i've written through the birth of my children um you, you just do it you just it's and it, to me in the, when i'm in the middle of it it seems quite natural but then when i stop and i just said it there i seem like oh god this guy must be freaking insane but no you just do it um, vacations, yeah. We, my, my family. I mean, my son plays travel lacrosse. He's a fantastic lacrosse player. Um, he's going into ninth grade, but he's been playing on these top travel teams for for a few years now. So all all summer long, every every weekend, 
I'm packing up my work and going with them to Chicago, to New York, to to Philadelphia, to Massachusetts. And I've learned how to work in hotel rooms and get no sleep and get my writing in and go watch him play lacrosse. So um, that's one aspect of my what I perceive as my flexibility. But family stuff, yeah, they know me. I just, we go on vacations. Um, we've been to you know the Bahamas and and, and whatnot. And uh, um, I just take my work with me. I get up early and, and do my writing. And then when they wake up, uh, off we go. Off you go. Wow. And so like in writing through the birth of children, like you're in the delivery room writing. Well, you know, I. I can't. My wife had very long labor. That's all I'll say. Um, yeah, she got, she got really. She, yeah, she uh, she wouldn't let me turn one. Uh, I, I think it was Anna. My, my my daughter was born on a Sunday, and my wife's labor was like twenty hours. And you know, God, I I don't know how women do it. It's 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 just if you know, it's something men could not endure. But you know how men are. I'm like, hey, it's Sunday. You're in labor. You're not going to give birth for a while. Can I just kind of turn on the football and? Boy, that that didn't go over well. So, um, yeah. So I snuck in. I actually I didn't write much when she was in labor, and I was I was I was there. But I mean, I wrote before it. Um, I, I yeah, I could tell stories. But yeah, um, yes, I was there. I was there for both my my that was the greatest experience. The thing that changed my life the most was was my children. Without without question, you, you don't understand unconditional love, unconditional anything until you have kids. And I was someone who I'd never really gave, given a good thought about, do I want to have children? And I didn't have uh, Anna until I was uh, in my thirties, well into my thirties. And she just changed my life completely and instantaneously. And then Zach's been the same way. So kids are the best things that ever happened to me without any question. And then, but they haven't, but they haven't changed my schedule. <laughs> I was going to say they've changed your life, but they haven't changed your routine. <laughs> there you go, there you go. I've learned how to adjust, but no, they're the, they're 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 the best. Uh, okay, and so when you talk about this type A, uh, and and I would say like uh, most writers have some uh, kind of regimen. You have to to get the work done because it's self. You do. I mean, there's just no way around it. it and. You know, but I don't think that all writers are necessarily type A. You think you fit the mold pretty, uh, pretty clearly in terms of being, you know, up at four without an alarm and never missing a writing day in thirty years and stuff like that. And so, when you try to analyze it, and I don't know if you've ever done this, but if you ever try to psychoanalyze it or whatever, do you think that that kind of devotion and commitment uh, is tied more to uh, ambition? Do you think it's a function of neuroses, or do you just think it's a function of understanding? Uh, personality or how to get, I mean, I, obviously you have to work very consistently to get books done. Um, yes. but do you know what I'm saying? Like when, when oh, I do know what you're saying, when you, I do when, know, I think... when you have that kind of ferocity of commitment, like, do you understand its origins? Yeah. Um, that's, that's also a good question. Maybe I should lay down on a couch and, and pay you for this session. But, <laughs> uh, um, I, yeah, I, I do understand with me. I mean, obviously part of it is, is, is is genetic are you predisposed to this sort of thing but it's also environmental um i don't want to go off on a on too much of a tangent but let's just say that uh, my upbringing um created a um <laughs> a condition within me where i turned to when i was younger um i turned to athletics as my outlet and i was completely obsessive about i was i was a, a runner and i was completely obsessed about running um and i take that same discipline uh slash um insanity 
into my writing. And it is, it, it, to, to answer your question quite seriously, it, it's, for me, it's a defense mechanism because um, I did not have the best uh, home environment when I was growing up. And um, I used these outlets as a cover, as a way of, of I, I can always lose myself in, in, in my athletics, in my, in my running. And now I, uh, writing is something that's always there for me and I can always turn to it and uh, be comforted by it and know that I can be protected by it. So part of my uh, insane schedule is also that, okay, this is, this is something I can control. This is, this is something that no one can, can take away from me. And um, that's how I feel that uh, I'm most comfortable. So. Right, right. And then, and you know, um, just, I was going to ask as a natural kind of uh, progression in terms of where this comes from, uh, you know, did you have an artistic parent? Like, is there any, are, are the arts, do they run in your family or is this something that sort of started with you? Um, my father was a brilliant man. He passed away eight years ago. Um, he, he was a, he was a brilliant attorney. Um, he aspired to writing, but he had, he, he 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 wasn't creative, um, but on my mother's side of the family, my mother was a musician, and everybody on my mom mom's side of the family is still a musician. My my cousins are extraordinary musicians, um, and now my daughter is a unbelievable musician. So arts run through the family, but nobody was a writer before me, and my I never saw my parents open a book. They they, they both were extremely highly educated, extremely intelligent. But there was no discussion of arts in, in our household. In fact, when I started writing, my father must have said to me a million times, "Why don't you just write a mystery? Why don't you just write a mystery? You know, mysteries <laughs> sell." Drove me nuts, you know. So, fortunately, he 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 was still with us uh, when my first book sold. So, um, but yeah. So. Okay, and so what about the music thing? That jumped over you. You didn't get that. Oh God! I you know, actually I can't play an instrument and I can't sing. But I, I used to work with musicians. This goes back uh, 30 plus years ago. Um, I I would write lyrics, and I could hear I can hear the song in my head, but I can't play an instrument to save my life. I actually did some songwriting. Um, I don't know if you know Stanley Turntine. He was a, a jazz saxophonist. Um, I sold uh, the song Betcha to him, which was his title love title song on his album like came out what in the early 80s no very before that i can't remember i did a lot a lot of songwriting but basically i didn't play an instrument i just did uh i would write the lyrics and i would work with musicians and i would hum out the melody and these these musicians would just amaze me i could literally hum the melody and they would sit down and play it like, how do you do that and my daughter's like that my daughter she wanted to take uh, guitar lessons, and I thought, okay, well, you know, as a parent, you support your kids any way you can. You figure out, if, you know, if they're going to stay with it or not. And uh, my cousin, who is a musician and also owns Limelight Music out in Rochester, Michigan, um, there's a plug, huh? Um, uh, my daughter's a lefty, and so he gave her this, got her this uh, nice um, starter lefty guitar. And I swear to you, within two weeks, she's playing like she played her entire life she it was it was unbelievable was, you're doing that it would take me a lifetime to play what she was playing as a 10 year old in two weeks so it's, it's, it just made sense to her like I, I kind of feel like there's something mathematical about music like there's something, there is isn't there yeah there's like a brain thing that happens where people can look at an instrument and put together the different notes and you know what i'm saying i just don't have that i do uh, yeah you know and then again i've never had a single lesson you know i was never i was not raised with music and my great grandfather was a, a 
pianist. So I mean, huh? there, there is some musicality in my family, but I, you know, I, I either didn't get it or don't know that I have it. You know. <laughs> Well, I tried. You know, for my generation, you know, parents were supposed to force you to play piano, and I took piano lessons, and I was, I just sucked. I, I couldn't do it. I don't know if it says. I think maybe with writing, you know, you're there and you're grinding and you're trying to form the art, and with music, it's supposed to, there's supposed to be this natural flow. And I was, I, I just think I overthought music. I could never grasp it. I could never just sit down and learn how to play. I was, I was terrible. I could never. I could never do it. And then I saw my daughter and she just, just like you put a guitar in her hand and it was boom. It was, it was freaky. It, it scared us. In fact, after two weeks, I said, okay, we're going to get you really good lessons. And she started working with, with uh, one teacher and he just kind of looked at, at us and said, you know what? Cause she was writing songs already. And he was like, well, okay, I'm just going to teach you by way of, we're going to work on your, the songs you're writing. So it, it just came to her. And she's she's got my personality. She has this great gift, but she works it. She works extremely hard. She plays every day, um, so she develops her craft. And I have the utmost respect for people who have this this innate ability, but then also say, you know, I'm going to respect this talent. And I'm going to actually make myself the best I can be. So it's nice to see how hard she works. Well, it's, it's got to be so fun to have a kid with a, that kind of talent too. How exciting is that? Oh, it's freaky. It's I love it. It's it's a yeah, It's I'm so proud. I'm proud of both my kids. That Anna's musical skill. I'm in awe, and I love what she's playing too. She's not. Um, I shouldn't say names like Katy Perry and that crap. But Anna's no Katy Perry. She's she's writing. She's writing. You know, Nora Jones and and Joni Mitchell. Really, really good stuff. It's I'm really proud of her. Wow, that's awesome. <laughs> Uh, and so, where are you from? You sound like you're from the Midwest. I, I say that coming from the Midwest myself. Am I wrong? No, I'm from the. I was born in born in Detroit. I grew up in Detroit until we, uh, 13, and then we moved out to the Burbs. But I I went to school in Detroit. Born in Detroit. Okay, and you alluded. You said you had kind of a, a rougher upbringing. But like, what kind of kid were you? I mean, aside from having this kind of like um, like commitment to running or this kind of monomaniacal. Uh, tendency. I mean, like in school, were you a good student? Were you were you reading and writing from a young age, or was it something that you sort of fell into after the running and the athletics went away? Um, I was always creative, but I wasn't I wasn't a big reader until uh, later. You know, later teens. Um, in in high school, I mean, again, I don't want to turn this into a therapy session, but it was uh, it was we had some issues at home, and compounding it. Um, on top of everything else that was going on, then my mom got cancer, um, so it was kind of a messy childhood. And uh, I was a kid who, um, as I said earlier, I found ways to um, feel protected um, by finding something that I could just throw myself into completely. And I, I lost myself. In my, I, mean, I was running uh, again. This is gonna <laughs> this is gonna just make me sound nuts, but I was running like. 15 to 20 miles a day when I was in my early teens. Uh, this is even before the running boom started. I would I would go out, I would get up in the early in the morning because I even at that age I wasn't a sleeper and I'd go for a 10 mile run before school, and then I would run again in the in the afternoon, um, and that's just how I I I, I lost myself. Um, I was otherwise I you know I, I didn't get in too much trouble uh, you know school wise. I didn't crack too many books, but I was naturally smart, so I, could, I got through high school 
with ridiculously good grades with for the amount of little work I did. And then when I it was when I got to college that I realized, hey, you know what, you actually have to open a book and learn this stuff. And then when I started opening books, I said, hey, you know what, this stuff's pretty cool. And I said, geez, I I can actually study and like it. So it was, it was an interesting. I wasn't I wasn't a bookworm in high school by any stretch. But you, I mean, you must have been a hell of a runner if you're running 20 miles a day or whatever. <laughs> like, you... Yeah, I was pretty good. But I was, but and then it comes into the. Uh, I mean, I never I don't, I don't hit the wall with my right. Maybe I do, and I don't know it. I just crank every day. But I ran myself into the. I ran myself into two major knee surgeries. I just I, the idea of not running. Um, scared the hell out of me because I didn't have running. What would I have? Cause I had nothing else to turn to. Um, so I ran myself into two pretty major injuries. I, I was a really, I was pretty good. And then I got hurt and then I got hurt again. So, so you run like cross country and track. Yeah. What, and what did you run in track? Like the 800 or the, no, I was uh, back when I was, um, in high school. Um, the longest I mean, now kid, I, I was running the mile and the two mile. And it, yeah. What was your best mile? My best mile was a 415. Jesus. Yeah. That's unbelievable. And it was all, I don't, I don't have natural speed, so every lap would be the same. I just, I just had guts and, uh, yeah. But, you know, it is what it is. It just, yeah, it was fine. (laughs) It was good. That's a, that's a lot. That's a, that's a fast mile. (laughs) Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't do that now in my, in my car, so. Yeah, I still run every day, but I'm not going for. I'm not. I'm not approaching those times. So that's uh, my you, brothers. That's what you do when you exercise. Is you still run? Yeah, although I, I I used to run outside. I ran outside forever. For you know, it didn't matter what the weather was. I'd just bundle up and go. But then um, about two years ago, I was out for a run, and I never had an injury like this before, and no warning at all. Um, my calf just snapped. And as I researched it after, I saw that um, you reach a certain age and this can happen because you don't realize that your your calf is, is compensating for hamstring issues and whatnot. So I, my hamstring just snapped. Uh, my, my, my calf just snapped. Um, it was like I was shot. It was unbelievable. Um, did, you so, fall, did you fall to the ground? Um, I, st- I, I never stopped a run, and I, I literally couldn't walk. I mean, I literally couldn't run. I had to... I, drag myself home. It, was, it truly was like I was shot. It was one step. I said, oh, there's a twinge I never had before. And the next step, my calf just exploded. Uh, yeah. So, but the, God bless it. Um, the, ever been on elliptical? You, uh, you can. Yeah. Yeah, you can do any. You can, you can have a broken leg and get it on an elliptical. It's amazing. So I just got myself an elliptical, and I didn't miss a beat. And now I love the elliptical. I'm, I just I get a great workout on it. And uh, every time I try to test myself back outside, my calf gives me problems. But so after all these many many years, I'm I'm on an elliptical now in the morning. It lets me get watch ESPN. So gotcha. And so okay. So then there's that. And then tell me that you 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 have to be consuming some caffeine if you're not sleeping like this. You <laughs> I'm sorry, man. If I if I did caffeine, I'd never sleep. I don't. I, I I hate coffee. I'd never do caffeine. Wow. I just. I, I I'm just one of those people who doesn't. I'm I'm lucky. If I had to sleep, I, you know, I would cut a big chunk out of my day. But I just don't sleep. So four hours. Okay. And then do you does it does this run in your family? Like, do you have like a uh, one of your parents or uh, siblings that can run like this? Um, my mom gets up fairly early, so she doesn't get that much. You know, she she's she's 80 years old now, and she still is up by 6 a.m., and she doesn't go to bed that early. Oh, so, so she's and, still with us. She, uh, you said you mentioned yeah, my mom. Yeah, my, my dad passed away. My mom's still with us. She had cancer twice, but she's still with us. She's tough. She's tough, yeah. I was going to say. Yeah. And my brother, um, 
is an early bird as well. So he doesn't, he's not a big sleeper either. What does he do? So, he practiced law, and now he runs a charity called Here to Help, which um, helps uh, people who are on the cusp of getting their lives together and just need an extra bit of support. So, for instance, if you've lost your job and you're looking for new work and you find something, but it requires you driving, you know, 30 miles each day and you don't have a car, his charity will get you a car. So it's 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 a pretty cool idea as opposed to just throwing money at a situation that uh, obviously everybody needs help and you want to be able to help everyone. But his charity is more designed toward, okay, you're about to get a leg up, but you just can't get that step and you need one further push. You know, you fill out this application and show us, you know, we're, we're close to getting our life back on track and his charity will make sure that that happens for you as opposed to you're falling 10 steps back again because you couldn't do that last little thing. Wow. Okay. So, and then he, he quit practicing law to do this? Yeah. He he practiced law for a, a number of years, and he's been running here to help now for about seven, a little over seven years now. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, and when you, you said your your father was an attorney, too, I'm just curious, like, what kind of law he practiced. Was he like a uh, like courtroom attorney? Like, was he like Matlock? Like, what was, what was happening? <laughs> yeah. He was, uh, he was birth trauma, actually. I mean, to, uh, Quite honestly, my my father was uh, was the 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 forerunner for uh, developing birth trauma litigation in this country. He was he was he was what, a, what kind of litigation? Birth trauma. That's when you know you go to a hospital and you're you're going to uh, give birth, and uh, the hospital just totally screws up. And back then, I mean, he started this you know fifty. 40, 50 years ago, um, there was no way to uh, discern what actually had transpired. If you had, if your baby was born dead or, or crippled or, or whatever the problem was, they just chalk it up to, well, you know, God, God deigned that to, to happen. And my father said, well, no, actually, there are a lot of mistakes that go on. The, the, the most traumatic thing we go through in life before death is usually, you know, that, that those 30 seconds that you're traveling down the birth canal. So he, he developed uh, you know, birth uh, litigation that would look into what exactly transpired during during these uh, these births, and it's uh, it's it's it, it's it's a pretty it's a pretty significant uh, development in the area of law. And uh, yeah, I was going to say, how do you track that? There must be some sort of is there some sort of legal requirement on the part of hospitals now, where they've got to actually. Uh, oh yeah, everything now. Do, everything's got to be documented. I mean, I, I know nothing. Oh yeah. Yeah, everything. Yeah, it's, and then the science is much better, and the and the experts are much better, and and yeah, everything is everything has changed. I, it's, it's the evol- everything evolves, right? So, um, yeah, he he was on he was on top of of uh, of seeing you know let's 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 look at the standard of care here, and let's uh, see exactly what transpired. And you know, back then they didn't know you know cerebral palsy is caused. Um, obviously, there's there's a genetic defect as well, but there's also cerebral palsy can be caused in a normal uh, infant during the birthing process if 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 it could happen naturally and it could happen because of a doctor's mistake. So there's there's all these things. There's there's just a myriad of things, and and he got on top of that, um, and he he developed it. So it's pretty cool. It's oh, pretty cool. Wow. Okay. So where did you go to college? I went to Michigan. Oh, University did. of Michigan, yeah, right there in Ann Arbor. So you've been in Ann Arbor for a long time. I mean, was there? A- yeah, well, I went out to um, I you know I 
again, um, my home life was weird. So I graduated, I, I, I humped it and graduated high school. I graduated in January just to get out of the house and I uh, got into Arizona because Michigan wasn't doing early admissions. And I, I went out to University of Arizona and, um, hell no, you know, I, I just had knee surgery. So I had lost all my scholarship, my running scholarships, but I just wanted to get out of the house. So I went out to Arizona and I went to school, started, I, mean, I literally finished high school and a week later I'm in college. Um, and honestly, I shouldn't say this on the air, but I'll say it anyway. Um, I was gone from the house like five days before my father said to my mother, where's Steven? So that's the kind of upbringing I had. I was out in Arizona in college. Um, and I went for like a year and, uh, let's just, let's just say I realized I had to figure out what the hell I was doing. So I, I dropped out of Arizona and I was writing and really doing some serious reading then and truly falling in love with, with reading and, trying to develop myself as a writer. So by the time I got back to Michigan, I knew that's what I wanted to do. And, uh, so I enrolled. were you dicking around in Arizona? Were you, were you yeah. drinking? Yeah. Doing drugs no, and stuff, or? Well, um, I, I was a, I, I didn't do a single drug in high school cause I was this pure runner and I hurt my knee for the first time. And, um, I used to go out with my buddies. I, I was never judgmental. I didn't care. You know, if you're a good guy, you're a good guy. If you want to do pot, that's fine. I used to go out with my buddies and you know they get stoned before you hit the movies or hit the parties, and I'd be the I'd be in the back seat holding my breath or sticking my head out the window, and they were cool with me because they knew who I was and I was cool with them because I you know I didn't care, um, but I never did any drugs until I got to college and blew up my knee for the second time, um, and I said okay well let's see <laughs> let's see what this is all about, <laughs> and uh, so I checked it out a little bit let's just say and you're out in Arizona so you got access to to many things I, you know you're right there near. Mexico and you're out there, you can, you can pretty much pick peyote out and go out in the desert and find peyote if you know how to clean it. So I got a, I got a good education fairly quickly while I was in Arizona. So wait, you can, you can just find peyote in Arizona? Oh yeah. Well, I don't know if you still can. I was out there in the seventies. Well, yeah, we, you can go into the desert and pick, you know, they're called buttons. You just pick them off the cactus and you, you break them open and you pull out the, uh, what is it? The, the white shit that's in there that's, if you eat it, it'll kill you. But you got to clean out the, the stuff that surrounds it. And then, uh, then you got a peyote. Oh my God. So wait, you, you pick this button off the cactus, the cactus and right? Then, and yeah. then, but there's white stuff in there that will actually kill you if you ingest it. If you eat too much of it, yeah, I'm trying to remember what the white stuff is. It looks like a little fuzzy white. It's a drug in and of itself, but that's not what you want to take. Yeah. Okay. So what's it like? Because I've never done peyote. Like, you take a peyote button in the desert. Like, do you? you I think you oh, vomit, yeah. right? And then it's just oh, you do vomit. Yeah. All those all those stories are true. Yeah, you do get a little sick. And then it's a it's a it's a nice. You know, I haven't done this in forever, but I can. Yeah, it's a. It's a nice hallucinogenic. So, so I mean, you didn't see like a, a Native American in the desert like, <laughs> beckoning you or anything. No, 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 no. No, no strange conversations with animals. Well, I, that was a, that was, I'm sure there were some strange conversations. I had a buddy who had a, a just really cool German Shepherd, and uh, I used to think that the German Shepherd and I were having very you know intellectual conversations. So. Yeah, that's been a while. I haven't done it. It's bringing back memories, but yeah. <laughs> very foggy memories. Very foggy memories, yeah. <laughs> okay, so then you're back in Michigan, uh, and, and you just basically decided that, you know, like what, what prompted the, the move back to Michigan after Arizona? Just basically ready to get back home and get serious about school? 
Yeah, well, I wanted to go to, you know, nothing against Arizona, but I, I figured, okay, if I'm going to do this, let's get back to a good school, and I could get back to, to Ann Arbor, um, get home. I mean, I didn't have any contact with my, my dad uh, too much. Um, but I, I set up house in, in, in Ann Arbor and uh, cranked my way through school. And by that time, it was interesting, too, because I had been out for a little bit, and I literally read absolutely everything. And I was writing, and I was working all these odd jobs. Um, and I came back to, to Michigan, which is a great school. And I, you know, you enroll, and you, you get the syllabus for each class that I signed up for. And I'd get the syllabus, and I'd say, oh, I read that, I read that, I read that, I read that. <laughs> so it was, it, was, it was good to have been out of school and not just uh, wasted my time, but to have actually read everything so going back to school and being a few years older um, made it a lot easier. Something I'd actually recommend. Um, if you're not ready for college, don't go to college. But, you know, you have, you have your have you have your eye set on, look, I want to do something with my life. Don't just, you know, 10 years down the road, she's saying, well, shit, you know, I'm, I'm doing something ridiculous and I haven't gotten my education. But I kind of knew that I, I would ultimately end up there, but um, – and I would, right out of high school, I thought everything would be fine, but I, really, I should have known that with all my emotional baggage, it wasn't fine. So when I took time out, I kind of took time out not just to screw around, but I took time out to, to gather myself, and I really got serious about writing and reading. Um, so going back to college, which I always knew I would do, I, I just I rolled through. It was great. It was a wonderful experience, and I was ready for it. So okay, if you're not so, ready... Well, so wait, how long of a gap was there between Arizona and when you actually enrolled at Ann Arbor? How much time did you take off? It was about three years. Oh, okay. So you were basically just self-educating and living at home during that time? or No, I wasn't at home. Believe I was not at yeah, home. You're like, I'm not going back there. <laughs> oh, I couldn't go back there. That's a whole other story. I was, um, I was working, just doing crazy-ass jobs, and... Um, and uh, and reading and writing, trying to develop, learn how to write, and uh, reading and writing and working in lumber yards. And I actually drove a. I, I'm I'm so bad with directions. I still am bad with directions. But I actually drove a cab for a couple of weeks, which was insane. I would literally bluff the people. Would get in and they'd say, you know, "I'm going take me to such and such." And I I just totally lied. Say, "Oh, that's near blank and blank." And they'd say, "No, it's near." And I I you know there's no GPS back in those days. So I had to figure out where the hell I was supposed to be taking these people. But, um, but yeah, I drove a cab. I worked in bookstores. I did you know, all these odd jobs. I lived in this basement apartment. And uh, but it was great. It was it was it was definitely what I needed to do. So. Yeah, I wish I would have taken a gap year. I've said this a million times, but like I was the perfect candidate for it. I was burned out on school, and if I just could have taken a year to go work a job or live somewhere uh, far away and. I don't know. I think I would have benefited because I got to college and I just wasn't ready to – I didn't want to do anything. I was happy to be there and be happy to be making friends and stuff like that, but I wasn't interested at all in school. Yeah, it was nothing I planned to do. I, you know, if someone, if someone had come to me and said, okay, well, how do you see yourself doing this? I never would have said, well, I'm going to take time off. It just kind of happened. I never saw – I was never one with my personality that would ever, you know, step back. But with my knee injuries and everything else, it just kind of happened, and then I fell into it. And three years later, uh, you know, I was like, "Wow, okay." Just the, even at the time, I wasn't sure it was the best thing I was doing. But then when I got back to into college, I said, "Well, I'm glad I took that time, and everything else just kind of flowed from there." So yeah, okay. And so, what about um, when we when when you look back on your life and you look back on 
the dividing line between your running years and your writing years, you know, because it seems like those are the two big obsessions of your life. Uh, correct. Right. Definitely. So do you, can you look back at a moment or at a, in particular, maybe a reading experience uh, that in addition to the knee injuries, because I guess the knee injuries are part of what, what pushed you into writing uh, and reading, but can you think of a book or multiple books that you read where it just sort of exploded things and sent you in the direction of writing? Um, I used to, I, well, I, I, I read, I, I fell in love with Flannery O'Connor. Flannery O'Connor, if you're saying, okay, who's the first one that just kind of like your eyes just popped? Um, I'd been reading a lot before I got to her. And then when I started reading her, I, I just, I just thought, wow, this, this woman is utterly you know, brilliant. And then I realized that, you know, she died when she was 39. It's just such a tragedy. And she was sick for so many years, and she was still producing this great stuff. And even though she was writing so much about God, and I'm 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 a devout atheist, but I am a firm believer in spirituality. And even though she was coming at it from a you know Catholic slash Christian side with God, she was still just you know kicking holes in God, <laughs> kicking, you know, she was questioning and questioning and questioning, even though she herself was a believer, and even though she was going through all this stuff personally. And I'm reading her and going, God, this is just, uh, just unfreaking believable. You know, so uh, at, at that age, that, that her writing just, just moved me. And then, um, I, you know, I, I read a lot of the classics. I, I loved the, the Russian writers. I loved Dostoevsky and Chekhov. And then I discovered John Cheever, who I just, you know, he took things in a different direction than Flannery O'Connor, but you can, st I could still make the, the connection where he was, he was a lost Catholic. He was a lapsed Catholic, but he's, everything was spiritual. He was examining the, the human soul and the human condition from, from the other side. And his writing just, just moved me. And I, I would read him. I still read him today. He's, he's, you know, there's a handful of people I go back to all the time and Cheever, literally his, his short stories, uh, the collected works, sits on my writing desk. It's the it's the lone book that's always right there. Um, I I just find him brilliant. So, so if you ask me for it's funny, for two, like the writers almost always have like a a favorite book or two. You know, they have like a hall of fame, and and usually yeah. it's it's. I mean, I'm talking about a small number. It could be just one book, but it's like a desk reference. It's not even it's not even on the shelf. It's on the desk. <laughs> that's exactly right. Yep. Yep. Yeah, you can just you know if you're in one of those having one of those days where you just you know you write one word and it looks like crap, you, you can just flip open and read two sentences, and I can just you know flip open Cheever and say, okay, that's how it's done, you know. So, yeah, I love I love Cheever. So, those two were were two early influences on me. And so, how did it? How did your career get started? You finished college in your mid twenties, is that right? Late twenties. Yeah, and I went. I literally graduated. Uh, in August and started law school um, like a week later. Um, so again, it's a family I, business. Yeah, well, I didn't go back. That's a whole nother. You want to get? <laughs> I did not go back to work for my father, and that got me into further shit. I didn't talk to my when I told him I wasn't coming back to work for him. Um, we didn't talk for several years after that. But yeah, I went. I, that was expected of you that you were going to go home and, and work for the family practice. Oh yeah, and my brother did, and you know, God bless him, but he did well by it. Um, but I was not going to work for my father under any circumstance. So I went to law school because I was, uh, um, I had done the starving artist bit before I went back to, to undergrad. And I knew that if I wanted to write and I was still writing through this whole time, um, that I had to have something to fall back on. And I didn't want to, 
I just, I, I'm not someone who does stuff the traditional way. I didn't want to say, okay, well, I'm just going to go to, to graduate school and get a PhD and get a teaching position. I'm like, you know what? I, I want to write. I want to learn how to write on my own. And I think I can do law and like law and write while I'm doing it. Um, that's not criticizing anybody who takes the, you know, gets a PhD. God bless me. You know, I look back now and say, that'd be pretty cool to have a PhD in, in literature. But I didn't go that route. Um, so I went to, to law school out in San Francisco and I can still, I can vividly recall the conversation on the phone with my father when I was just finished my second year of law school and he, he broached the subject of my coming back. Um, and I just, I said, you know what, dad, I'm not coming back. I'm going to go find my own job somewhere. Um, and boy, it, that conversation <laughs> did not go well. Um, yeah. So what school were you at in San Francisco? University of San Francisco School of Law. You just wanted yeah. to get out and check out the West Coast, basically. Well, I went to school out there, and I had job offers to stay in California. But I'm a I'm a Midwestern boy. It's complete. God bless California, but it's a it's more laid back than I am. So I went from uh, I graduated law school, and I went out. I went to D.C. with no no job offer or anything. I had one wool suit. You ever been in? DC in the summer. Oh, you don't want to. You don't want to wear a wool suit. But I'm doing. I'm studying for the bar, and I'm going around to all these firms, interviewing for a, a job, um, and uh, you know, just cold. And uh, I, I got fortunate. I got hired by this one firm, and I passed the bar, and I did well at that firm. Then I went to another firm in DC. Um, so, and all the time I was writing and writing, and my days back then were absolutely insane. So I was going to say, well, uh, you still you were doing the four a.m. thing, and then just writing until you. Went oh, I wish it was four. I used to get up in law. Things you can do when you're young. I couldn't do it now, but back then, I, and again, people are going to listen to this and say oh, he's full of shit, but it's actually true. I would work ridiculously late hours at a law firm. I would come home. I'd sleep for a couple hours. I would get up at three in the morning and write. And I would write for like three hours, and then I would. Uh, I anybody knows DC, everything's done on the metro. I would drive from where I was living because I was stupid enough to rent a place that wasn't near the metro. I would drive to my gym and work out, and then take the metro into where I was practicing law, um, and do my law day. And then I come home and sleep. And I literally wouldn't get home till ten or eleven, and I'd crash and get up at three and write, go to the gym, and go practice law, and. Uh, Needless to say, my first marriage didn't last. Yeah, I was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a whole other story. But yeah, yeah. So that's what I did. That's what I did. That's how things got going. Then I then um, my writing slowly started to take off. So. Wow. Okay. So you were working in D.C. Uh, you were doing this crazy uh, schedule. You were starting. You know, you were working on your writing, and then you were married. Uh, and then that the marriage ended, and then you moved back to Michigan. Just as correct, okay. yeah. And so you left the job in D.C. and you came home. Did you and did you practice law in Michigan? I did. I practiced uh, part time at a firm in Michigan while I was I was able to write a little. Bit. I would extend my writing day and practice. I used to practice law from noon until six. I would I would get up and, and write, and then I'd go and practice law. Um, and then I sold Walter Falls. Not that Walter Falls put me over the top financially, but um, I uh, when I was in D.C. Um, this was a, this was in the '80s, and it was literally I got really lucky. It was at the it was literally my class, graduating class from law school, was one of the last classes where you could go out and 
get a good job if you had the if you had the grades and you know you you, you warranted being hired by a good firm. I mean, out of law school, I was just a, you know I was a novice. I didn't know anything other than what I was learned in law school. But back in those days, they were throwing you know serious coin at you. I was I came out of law school and this remember this is the eighties. You're talking thirty years ago, almost thirty years ago. Um, and I made I was making sixty grand right out of law school. You can't you can't graduate from law school now and make sixty grand. The whole everybody used to think, okay, if you're a lawyer, you can get a job anywhere. That 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 well has dried up. So I was one of the last classes that you could actually graduate from law school and get a good job. So I saved a buttload of money, and I was I, I pride myself on being smart enough to know what I don't know. So with the money I saved, I um, gave it to people who knew how to invest. And again, this was at time at a time when the the market was doing well. So I made I, I made some money and I put it away and it it really it's it's really served me well over the years. I'm very lucky to have been able to do this at a time when there was money to be made. So I, I wouldn't want to be a kid today graduating. I mean, my kids think it's going to be tough. You get out there in the real world today, it's completely different. And if you want me to talk a little bit more about this, I always remembered that when I was in college and uh, I thought my time was, was pretty fortunate. And I had a professor who I loved. I actually took him three times at U of M, great professor, John Gildoff. And he said when he graduated with his PhD in English, he traveled in Europe for a year and then came back and could pick his job at a university. Um, he was, you know, he's been dead for, for a while, but you know, and he was, he was in his sixties when I took him. So imagine how old he was. Um, so he went probably went to school in the what the thirties or forties. Um, but in any event, now you can get a PhD at the best school in the country in English, and it still isn't to guarantee you a job. So the whole whole world has completely changed from what it was fifty, sixty years ago. Yeah, it feels like that feels so fucked up. You know, like what has happened? <laughs> yeah. you, my, like our, my parents, your parents, like you could have a, a you know one parent working, the, you know, the other parent could be. A, my mother stayed at home. Like not that my parents were. Uh, doing all that well, like uh, earlier in their lives, but like you could still do it. That's the whole point. Is like right out of college, almost you could get a yeah. job and support a family and buy a house. You know, like yep. all that stuff has changed. And like, what I want to know is why. Like, why? Like, what in what in the system? Something That's is a good question. something has clearly gone wrong. And then there's also a part of me. Uh, and I don't know how much of this is warranted, but this is where I'm channeling a lot of my, uh, you know, my quiet rage. But I, I have such a thing against the baby boomers, uh, my, my parents' generation, because they got everything. <laughs> they got well, everything. They, they got like pre-AIDS, like free love. They got drugs. They got, you know, the, <laughs> nobody knew what LSD was. They got this great economy, like the post-World War II economic boom. They got, you know what I'm saying? And like they got all I this do. stuff and they didn't want anyone else to have it, you know? Yeah. Just, then they turned around and said, just say no and blah, blah, blah. And it's just, <laughs> yeah. It, it is definitely different back then than it is now. I think uh, you can't you can't actually put your finger on it, but certainly, um, I mean, there's greed is is it goes back you know since the dawn of time, but but it's become part of uh, it's systemic now. It's it's um, the middle class doesn't exist. It's been it's been squeezed. It's been it's been crushed. Um, you have such a divide between the haves and the haves not. Um, and it's and it's built into to, to the formula. I mean, there, again, I could just go off on a tangent here, but you know, the whole collapse of the um, the housing industry was total greed. It was totally foreseeable. It was predicted years before it happened, and it all began 
I, I'm a staunch liberal, a staunch Democrat. I'm a big supporter of Bill Clinton, who I think was our brightest. I mean, and from an intellectual standpoint, the man is off the charts. But he made a mistake in not seeing what his well-intended acts will do. And his well-intended act was to, um, I can't recall the name, name of, of the banking act, but he opened up... A Glass-Steagall. Um, well, Glass-Steagall was something a little bit earlier than, than, than Clinton. But what Clinton did was um, he made it so that uh, minorities would have further access to loans uh, through the banks, not taking into account, well, if we open up these loans to minorities who don't have to meet all these regulations, because Clinton wanted you know, minorities to be able to buy houses and, and, and get loans for businesses, the banks are fucking assholes. They're, they're, they're like, well, okay, we're not going to do this for altruistic reasons. We're just going to open it up to everyone, and we're going to make all these attractive loans to people who otherwise can't afford them, and I don't know how much you know you or your audience wants to know about what what banks then do with with these mortgages. They don't just sit on them and wait for the checks to roll in from the um, uh, from from the public. They package them as um, as securities and they sell them to to, to Fannie Mae. We get, you know that's why the Fannie Mae and and uh, the other one went out went bust because they sold them as securities in the secondary market. Um, and they made their money hand over fist, the banks did. And knowing that these freaking loans were going to go belly up. And that's what happened. And the whole freaking country imploded. So you want to know what happened? So, yeah, yeah. I mean, no, but it's like, I think that's right. I mean, it's like you look at it and it's obviously not just one thing, but I think it's like a systemic greed and uh, an increasing division between haves and have-nots, which, which ultimately means there's not really uh, uh, as much of a middle class anymore. It's like rapidly dwindling. So yeah. it pisses me off. <laughs> I don't blame you. I don't, yeah, I hear you. I, I agree. I don't know what you can do about it. I, I think these yeah, – it, it just spins out of control. You got uh, – you look at these, uh, these, these CEOs who run their companies into the ground, and yet when they leave, they get uh, multimillion-dollar golden parachutes and these security – these stock – options and it's like wait a minute you just ran that company into the ground and you're walking away with with 20 30 million dollars how how is that freaking possible you know how much 20 million dollars can do to support the working man you know it's just i don't know yeah, the, the, yeah. yeah it's, it's crazy it's gross it's gross it, it is gross man so what about uh your future as a writer i mean obviously you've got this new book out and then you're going to continue uh your regimen i have no doubt about that i have complete confidence that that's going to continue <laughs> to happen <laughs> Yeah, I'm working on a new novel. I'm working on a new novel that's 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 going well. I mean, that's as well as you can say when you're in the, when you're in the those dark hours of putting a novel together. But it's it's going well. I'm yeah. And then what um, about what about ambition? Like, I mean, it sounds to me like you derive so much pleasure from just getting the work done and doing the actual thing. Do you? Yeah, think you're very astute. That's exactly right. I just day to day. I try to say that to my kids. It's like. Doesn't matter what you did yesterday. It's what you do today. Just yeah, I just work it. I love what I'm doing. I love the creative process. I love discovering you know what's going to come from the process, but I just work it. So and yeah, you, you never... don't have like a grand design about like how you want your career to look, you know, 15 years from now or whatever it would be. You know, like are you working like with that kind of plan in I, mind, I, or is it more of a is it more of a you know just like a you're going to expose me here. Um, when I first started, I wanted to write that. Every writer wants to write the great American novel. And, um, you know, you realize you, you, it, it's a process. 
now I've been at this process for quite some time, and to, to be quite candid, and <laughs> I don't know if I should say this, but I'll say I'm, I'm hopeful that the novel I'm working on now will be the crowning achievement of, of, of my career, and I think I'm going in that direction. And, and we'll see. I'm proud of what I've done before it, but this is the novel that I'm, I'm saying, you know what? I'm really going to just going to take everything I've learned over the years and take my time and just, I mean, I love, I love TC. I used to love TC Boyle. I love, he's a great guy and, and I love his early writing. And now he's, he's reached a point in his career where he literally, and he said this, he puts out a book a year, a, a freaking novel a year. And uh, you know, I, I shouldn't say anything, but TC Boyle is a genius. And I, I, I think world's end is one of the great, great books of the last 50 years. Um, but now he's, he just writes, he writes a book. He said, Hey, I'm on a, I have a debt. I put a, a self-imposed deadline and I do a book a year and I toss it at my editor and there it is. And you go back and check me. You'll see it's a book a freaking year. I don't want to do that. I'm like, look, I've spent the last 30 years learning how to write. Now I'm going to take my freaking time and I'm going to write the best book I can. If it takes me the rest of my life, I'm going to write the best book I can. So when asking me where I am now, that's where I am. I want to write everything I've learned. I want to put it into this, this novel I'm working on now. That's, that's sort of where I am. You know, like I, I feel like the same way. It's about quality and not quantity. Like I, I'd be, oh, yeah. be happy writing one good book, like really good book. That's oh, yeah. as good as I can possibly do. That would be satisfying to me, as opposed to like you know, fifteen mediocre ones or whatever. Oh, it's the truth, isn't it? That's exactly it. You know, that's and sometimes when you're writing that mediocre stuff, you think it's great because you're just you're just learning. But I'm at an age now where I actually, you know, it's what Hemingway said when Hemingway blew his brains out, not because he said he, you know, uh, you can't say much after he blew his brains out, but <laughs> uh, he said, you know, it was that he, it wasn't so. It, it was more that he knew what he was writing wasn't good. So, because he had gotten to a point in his career, where he totally understood writing. So, I think, I, hopefully, I'm not. <laughs> I, I'm writing. I know enough now to know how to really write well. I think now, whether or not I can do it is another thing. But I don't want to. I, I know I can write good stuff and publishable stuff, but I don't want to do that. I want to say, okay, look at it. You know, let's try to write something really, really good. And, and if it doesn't come off, so be it. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna really hump it and say, okay, let's take everything you know and try to write just the greatest book you ever could. Well, I wish you all the best with that. That sounds like a noble, uh, noble effort and, uh, be interested to see, you know, how it turns out when, when it finally gets done. And I certainly thank you for the time. It's really uh, been a pleasure talking with you. Well, thank you very much. It's been great. Okay, folks, there you go. That is Stephen Gillis. His new book is called The Law of Strings. It's a story collection available from Atticus Books. You can find Stephen on the web at Facebook and be sure to check out dezankbooks.org. This show has a website. It's otherpeoplepod.com. And uh, if you want to donate and help keep the show going, you can do that by going to otherpeoplepod.com and clicking on Donate in the right sidebar. The show has a Facebook presence. It has a Twitter feed at otherpeoplepod. I have a Twitter feed at Brad Listy if you would like to read my deeply self-conscious tweeting. And if you would like to email me and let me know your thoughts, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Thank you to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And, uh, hey, if you need some books, go get a copy of something from TNB Books, the official imprint of the TheNervousBreakdown.com. That's my online culture magazine and literary community. Get a copy of the Beautiful Anthology, a collection of essays about beauty, edited by Elizabeth Collins, or How About My Dead Pets Are Interesting, a humor collection by Lenore Zion, or Subversia, a terrific essay collection by D.R. Haney, or Paper Doll Orgy, the cartoon collection by Ted McCagg. 
any one of those titles can be found anywhere that books are sold online. And, uh, you know, whatever you do, read something, feed your head good food. This is what I tell myself. I tell myself to make more art. I don't think I'm ever doing enough creatively. I tell myself that I shouldn't be sitting slack-jawed with my eyes dilated in front of a glowing screen passively. Uh, I do too much of this. It is a drug. It has a narcotic effect that is distinct hours a day in front of a screen. Uh, You know, I, I think about it this way. I have a telephone with an HD camera in it, and I have iMovie on my laptop. Uh, Why am I not making a movie a day? Why am I not doing this? Even like a two-minute movie, a documentary a day. I feel like I'm letting myself down. Please remember that Marcel Proust wheezed almost constantly and that Modigliani died of tubercular meningitis. Thank you for listening, folks. I appreciate it. Thanks for spreading the word. Thanks for rating and reviewing the show over at iTunes. That really does help. I will be back again soon. I can hear crickets. I don't know if you can hear that. There are crickets chirping outside my window. It is late here in Los Angeles. I have to be up early tomorrow. Uh, No rest for the weary. It is a race against the clock. I want someone to come over uh, into my room with an adrenaline shot tomorrow at 6 a.m. And I want them to jam that adrenaline shot as hard as they can into my solar plexus. Okay, I need to go to bed. Bye, everybody. Good night. Bye. See ya.